Lawyers always need to be on top of their game, or at least appear to be. It can feel overwhelming to recognize or admit when we aren't, and even harder to reach out and get help. Welcome to Sidebar, brought to you by North Carolina's Lawyer Assistance Program, where lawyers help lawyers by sharing their experience, strength, and hope as they delve into their personal journeys of recovery. Hi, I'm Candace Hoffman, the field coordinator with LAP, and I'm here today with our truly awesome Eastern Clinical Coordinator of LAP, Nikki Ellington. She is a licensed clinical mental health counselor and a licensed clinical addiction specialist. We're going to talk about an article today that goes into imposter syndrome. You can find it in the State Bar Journal, and we will link it to today's episode. Nikki, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Candice. Imposter syndrome, we hear about a lot recently, but can you take a minute and just define it? Tell us what it really is. Definitely. Imposter syndrome is the feeling that despite all of your objective successes, that you fail to internalize these accomplishments, that you feel incompetent, you feel like a fraud you feel like everyone's going to find out. Whatever the external validations that you have do not match up with how you feel on the inside and they are not able to change that feeling of not being good enough. When I was in college, I broke down and told one of my college professors that I really thought I didn't deserve to be in the program that I was in. I had tricked everybody into letting me in. And she said, you think you're not smart enough to be here despite your grades, yet you also think you're smarter than all of us to have tricked us into letting you in this program. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. You got it. You got it. When I think it's become so trendy now because it's, happen so frequently. So many people experience this throughout their lives. Now that we've got a little trendy word for it, we can name it so we can deal with it. It's nice knowing how it falls apart across the strata too, because I've talked to other attorneys that feel this way, but also judges. I think it's another one of these things that it doesn't discriminate. It affects all walks of life, all types of people, all levels of successes. Wherever you want to take it, a where, when, or why, or how, do you think this syndrome originates for individuals? Is it inherent when we're born? How does this start? There are multiple, probably, places that this could stem from. And there has been some research that shows that, for example, Growing up in a controlling or overprotective home can lead to the development of imposter syndrome. Anecdotally, I don't feel like that's the only thing. I think there are a lot of contributing factors that can lead to somebody experiencing imposter syndrome. It's a combination of nature and nurture. Our family dynamics definitely play a role in childhood experiences. They contribute to shaping our core issues as adults and the way that our brains are wired. Certain personality traits, I think, also contribute to the experience of imposter syndrome. Some in particular would be perfectionism, low self-efficacy, and being a high or overachiever. Those are things that I've observed, especially since 
working exclusively with lawyers that have been common and prevalent when people also report experiencing imposter syndrome. What is low self-efficacy? That is your belief that you can not succeed. Well, your belief that you can succeed, self-efficacy. It's your internal belief that you can do it. Some people have a greater level of that naturally, whereas other people may be more pessimistic about their abilities generally. I definitely believe that. And I might not have before, but just raising two daughters that I feel like I've raised the exact same And one came out of the gate with more self-confidence than I've ever seen in a human being. And it's amazing to see how that is just within some people. Yes. Because I always believed parents tell their kids they can do it, or if they're really encouraging, then that person just naturally believes they can do it. And that may contribute somewhat, but good to know that that can also be just something innate with people that they either have that low self-efficacy or high self-efficacy? I totally have a similar experience with raising a child in that I remember my son was really little and I don't remember if he was coloring or doing some sort of activity and he got so mad at himself because he didn't do it perfectly the first time, just crumpled the paper up and threw it. Having had a conversation with him, it's unrealistic to expect that we're going to do something perfectly the first time that we do it, but how that was so innately a part of his personality and also something that I don't know that I necessarily have that I passed down. It's been an interesting experience seeing it in a child. What would you say is the difference between a conscience and an inner critic? Yes. And Robin does talk about this in the article, but I think Your conscience is your guide to your value system. It helps you to decide between what's right and wrong for you. And each person kind of develops their own as they grow. And it comes from our family too, to some degree. But our inner critic is the voice inside our head that tells you that if you don't do well, or you don't perform up to standards, or even really just if you're trying to perform at all, anything, then the inner critic is going to be the voice that says you're not good enough. It's critical, right? That's why it's the inner critic. It's going to say you're not good enough. You didn't work hard enough and you don't deserve it. Do you see different degrees of inner critics in people? When we're talking about imposter syndrome, would you say that's an inner critic turned up to 10 or (laughs) that's there's different severity of it for each person. The biggest indicator generally for any time that we're experiencing symptoms of something is how much is it causing a disturbance in my life? All people have an inner critic to some degree, but the question is how problematic is it on the day-to-day? Is it getting in the way of you being effective, successful, and happy? If we answer yes to that, then We just got to deal with what is the severity probably doesn't matter so much as much as let's problem solve ways that we can deal with what's going on that's getting in our way. Do you see when people come into you and and talk about having a high inner critic or imposter syndrome and you're problem solving together, how often are people that are dealing with imposter syndrome open and kind of willing to problem solve with you and look for solutions? 
Well, I think the willingness is there. That's one of the beauties of working at LAP is that most people that come in want to come in because they want help. I do think the willingness is usually there. Difficulty is when I tell them that working on it takes practice and time that I feel a lot of the times the initial reaction is, oh man, <laughs> this is hard. This is going to be hard. <laughs> and this is taking a long time. Why aren't I better yet? Sometimes the answer is, unfortunately, I don't know that it's ever going to go away completely, but that we're going to learn skills so that we can cope with it so that it doesn't continue to be invasive in our life and problematic, but that it'll be something that we can cope with and not let it trigger us too much. Would you say that you see imposter syndrome in any specific demographic or attorney or it's pretty widespread? Imposter syndrome is the one thing that universally is experienced. I run support groups across the state for lawyers, and it's probably the one topic that is universally relatable and comes up so frequently in group. I talk about imposter syndrome probably at least once a week, if not more often than that. That's interesting. In the group setting, because in imposter syndrome, a lot of times the person cannot see this quote unquote objective data that says that they're successful. They believe it's all made up or they can't see the successes. Is discussing imposter syndrome in a group scenario helpful that other members of the group can kind of hold that mirror up and say, this is what I'm seeing, even if that individual can't see it themselves? Absolutely. Well, I think the beauty of the groups is that first a safe place and newcomers get to observe others practicing being vulnerable. So that makes them feel safe to share. So then as people are sharing, I think their issues with imposter syndrome come out naturally. So someone may be sharing about an incident that they had at work and they talk about, you know, and I know that I'm just this, I'm just going to lose this court case. I know it's going to lose at this trial anyways, to have a group of lawyers who all get it because they've all lived through it themselves to be able to say, hold on a second. How do you know that? How do you know that to be true? A lot of the times it's not so much about this is what's happened to you, or this is what you're doing. It's more about asking questions about the situation to bring it to light for the person when they don't see it because everybody else sees it because they get it because they felt it too. It's really easy to get trapped in our own perspective. I treat myself a lot more critically than I do any other human being on earth. So when I hear somebody else talking about their same experience with something I'm struggling with, I don't think you're not good enough. I'm like, oh no, that is something that you're dealing with. And I completely see the positives and how you got through it where it's hard to see in myself. In the beginning, especially the imposter syndrome, it's so entrenched in our our life, in our brain and our psyche and our spirit that we often need that mirror reflected because even for folks sometimes that have worked on it, they may still experience it and it takes time and sometimes somebody else to be like wait 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 that's it that's it again that's that inner critic and you sometimes don't even believe it then you, when someone brings it up you're like oh yep there it is again rearing its ugly head when people i know there's 
in the recovery world, they talk about people when they're coming in out of that addiction or, and I'm assuming out of a lot of different mental health issues, we have a hard time distinguishing the truth from the false. I always found the lap groups to be a great place to help divine that information. Yep, exactly. What tools would you suggest that could be helpful when we do have a level of imposter syndrome or that is becoming debilitating in our everyday life? First step when we begin to do this work is remembering to give yourself grace and patience. It took us a long time to get to where we are. And sometimes people, lawyers are not realizing that this is an issue until they're later in life. So it took us a long time to get here. It's not going to change overnight and we're not going to practice a new skill once and then have this whole experience go away. First things first is treating ourselves with kindness. The next step about combating our inner critic is to notice it. Paying attention to when it happens and how it happens in our brain Noticing it and having that awareness, developing the awareness of when it's occurring gives our brain the space to do something different. So first we have to notice and bring it to the surface, gives our brain and our body the pause that we need to redirect our thoughts. With these self-deprecating thoughts that often come to your mind, after we notice it, we want to notice it without judgment. So what that means is we're having a self-deprecating thought. We can notice that we're having it. And then we don't want to say, well, you're a stupid idiot for having this self-deprecating thought. We want to just notice it and say, I see you, I hear you. And then one thing that we can do is practice mindfully letting that thought pass. You know, one thing for me that works well is visualizing that thought like it's a cloud and letting it drift off away. Kathy likes to visualize a leaf in a stream. Whatever works for you, that actual process of visualizing does help to detach from the thought that's causing us stress. I really like the thought of imagining something and going away from my body really helps. I think a lot of people hear these things that we're supposed to do, and it's really hard hard to practice okay, I'm just not going to attach to that thought. That idea in absentia seems really hard, but providing the visual component makes it a lot easier. Well, and I think people do this some, probably naturally to some degree, but they don't realize how they're doing it. For example, in the lap group, sometimes when we're talking about stuff like this, someone will say, well, just let it go. And I'll have to ask them, well, how do you actually do that? How do you actually let it go? Let's talk about that giving that lawyer the time to be like, oh, how do I do that? Let me think. And then it's like, okay, well, I just practice watching that thought go away and trying not to attach to it and then redirecting my thought to something else. Another way of dealing with it is being able to come up with the counterpoint. Noticing that we're having this inner critic without judging ourselves about it and then being able to come up with an alternative truth to that inner critic. For example, if you're an associate at a law firm, a managing partner asks you to work on a brief, you work on it and turn it back in. And that managing partner comes back with some corrections to the brief that you 
just spent all this time working on. Your inner critic might say, I'm a horrible attorney. I'm not good enough to do this work. Now this partner knows how much I suck and I'm probably going to get fired. These are actual conversations I've had with people. So if this is you, know that you are not alone. Honestly, I've never worked with another population that thinks they're going to get fired as much as lawyers. (laughs) We want to notice the thought and then tell ourselves the corrections. One thing in that example we would say is receiving corrections and feedback is how people learn. Not doing something like perfectly the first time does not mean that you are not good at what you do. I bring value to the law firm and I'm not going to get fired over learning how to write a brief or receiving feedback on a brief. If we want to simplify all that, we could just notice the thoughts and tell ourselves, no, thank you. And then redirect your attention to something else. Making that counterpoint is really helpful. The more that we practice noticing the thought and making the counterpoint, the easier it gets over time our brain starts to actually rewire and we learn a new way of dealing with these thoughts that are not the rumination that we were dealing with before that was getting in the way of us functioning and being successful. Another thing to remember is that sometimes we're so entrenched in the thoughts that it's really difficult to pull ourselves out of it. We may be able to notice it, but we may not be able to come up with the counterpoint. There have been plenty of times where I've talked to someone and they're like, no, really, I really believe I am getting fired. And being able to say, I understand that you believe that. For me, being able to help them talk out what the facts are that I observe because they can't do it for themselves, that is also a helpful process that one, being able to talk about it with someone that we trust, and two, listening to their thoughts on their perspective of the truth And then three, accepting that because we respect this person, because we trust them, that they are telling us the truth and practicing the letting go of the thought after that is helpful. That's a really good point. It's a struggle to accept their truth. Then also that's restructuring of our brain, being able to say, no, this is a respected person. They wouldn't lie to me. Another skill actually that recently came up in one of the support groups that I was running, a person talked about if they were experiencing a really difficult trial, like when they knew was coming up or they just got done working on a a piece of work that was really challenging or they knew they were going into a mediation that was going to be tough and emotionally charged, that this person was planning in their day time for mindfulness and meditation after the event. I really liked this and I thought this was a super healthy way of engaging in self-care that isn't super time consuming because it could just be two to 10 minutes. But if you know you're having this mediation and put in your calendar five minutes where you're just gonna sit there and practice a mindfulness activity or a meditation, you're just, and that could be so simple as just sitting there and breathing just focusing on our breath, noticing how our breath is moving through our body, noticing what it feels like in our chest, notice what it feels like to feel our feet on the floor. Taking those couple of minutes, this helps us to regroup, recharge, reset, and it kind of gives our brain that feeling so that we can then move on and take on the rest of our day. 
that as a, a preventative way of helping our inner critic to quiet down. I love those tips. Why do you think that imposter syndrome is so common among lawyers? That is really a chicken or an egg question. On the one hand, a lot of people with similar intelligence levels and personality types are attracted to law school. You have to excel in school and be highly motivated to get into law school in the first place. So naturally, more high achievers with professionistic traits are going to be found in law school. On the other hand, the experience of law school somewhat lays the foundation for imposter syndrome as well, or it certainly doesn't help. It is highly competitive, often encouraging or even requiring comparison between yourself and your classmates. Law students are pushed to do more, more, more without much grace. The message seems to be that you need to always know the answer because you may get called out. And if you get called out and you don't know the answer, a lot of the response is shaming, whether that be what the professor is actually doing that's causing the shame or the internal experience of feeling shameful for not knowing the answer because of the pressure that's in school. I do believe a lot of law schools are trying to develop more awareness and make some shifts in these areas. When it, especially when it comes to teaching styles, but this is also something that's been going on for decades and it's super challenging to shift that tide. Being able to have some awareness about imposter syndrome from the beginning is only going to allow law students and then lawyers to become more resilient as they age in the profession. Definitely. I can still feel all the hairs on my arm stand on end when I think about sitting in a law school class and that fear of getting called on and not having that perfect answer. I love that more law students are coming to LAP. I know that was one of my favorite things as a LAP volunteer is when I got to talk to law students, the most common thing they said was, I'm lost here. Everybody else knows what they're doing. Everybody else has it figured out. And I have no idea what's going on. It was so nice to be able to say, they don't know. Nobody has it figured out. You're all stepping through a fire hose of information. You're going to be okay. I'm so glad that more law schools are having us there to talk and law school office hours. It can feel very isolating. Thinking that you're the only one that's lost and doesn't have it together that experience in itself, that feeling in itself makes you not want to share about it because it feels so shameful. But when you do, then you realize, oh my gosh, everybody else feels this way too. And it's super validating and a very helpful experience, feel validated in that way. The other part of it that's kind of tricky is when law students come in and start talking about this and all the lawyers say, yeah, that never really goes away. The reframe of that is it may not ever go away, but we can help you develop coping skills to deal with it. And you can feel not alone and it can be less disruptive in your life when you do that. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. I am just so happy that you're here to help all these lovely attorneys in North Carolina. I'm glad to be able to do it. Thanks, Candace, for having me. Thank you for joining us at the Sidebar. 
If this is your first time, we encourage you to listen to another episode or two, subscribe to our newsletter, and peruse the resources at www.nclap.org. And if you know a lawyer who could use a hand, please share this episode with them today. Remember, at Sidebar, you are not alone. In fact, you are in quite good company. 